The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I do invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. Um, so for me as, as a kid, uh, I refused to ride any roller coaster that went upside down. I, I, for whatever reason, the notion of being completely inverted freaked me out. I don't know if any of you were in that. Like, I loved all other rides, but not going upside down. I mean, you know, what if something went wrong? Like the safety bar broke or the track was messed up. And many YouTube videos would say that my fears were justified, by the way. You want to freak yourself out and never ride a roller coaster again? Just go spend an afternoon on YouTube. But I didn't trust the safety standards of places like Six Flags for a single second. I was full of fear and doubt. Until I was tricked. A friend that I was at Six Flags with got me in line for a ride that he assured me did not go upside down. And he did not alert me to the reality of the situation until I was clicked in and we were moving. Despite the fact that I had done everything within my power to lock this experience out of my life, I was now locked in for the the ride. And it was amazingly life-changing. Life alter. It was the most fun that I can recall having up to that point in my brief existence. When the ride ended, I looked at my friend and I just said one word, again. And then we did it again and again. And that day we rode every single ride at Six Flags that possibly went upside down, most of them multiple times. I had an encounter with fun that flipped quite literally, that, that reversed all of my fears and doubts. And all of us have encounters like this throughout our lives. That one was just kind of this silly flippant thing, but we have much larger, much more meaningful moments that reverse the course of our very life. When I met my wife, Holly, my life was reversed, course altered, everything changed. Hearing the words, congratulations, you're a father. Life reversed, flipped, still figuring out the ways that it has been reversed. When I Googled seminaries in Alabama, that flipped, reversed the course of my life. When I had a friend one day approach me and say, Jonathan, my church, Shades Valley, is looking for a pastor. I think you should look into it. That flipped, changed, reversed my, my life. There are moments, encounters that change everything. And there is no greater moment, no encounter more powerful to reverse everything in life than encountering the resurrected Christ. This is what I believe that John, our author, wants us to see in chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. He wants us to see how the resurrection reverses everything. We talk about that. We talked about it last week. The resurrection changes everything. Great. How does it do that? John wants us to encounter Christ and experience a resurrection reversal in our, our lives. He wants our fears and our doubts to give way to faith. The question is, how? How does the resurrection reverse everything? And, and even more specifically, how do I encounter the resurrected Christ? 
Like, if that's what reverses, if that's what flips things, how am I going to do that? I don't know about any of you, but I have not seen the resurrected Jesus in the flesh. If you have, let's talk later. That would be very interesting to hear about. So how am I supposed to encounter the resurrected Christ? How does that reverse my life so that my fears and my doubts give way to faith? Because if I'm honest, I think if most of us are honest, we've got a lot of fear and doubt because we live in the midst of a culture that pressures us in directions that cause fear and doubt. We live in a culture that's obsessed with fear and doubt, where it is daily on the rise. Just do a quick Google search of some statistics for the rise in anxiety medication prescriptions. For, for which I, I, y'all know I take antidepressants, so I'm not knocking that at all. I'm just saying, just do a quick Google search. Uh, do, do a quick Google search for the rise in people and in statistics of people that are obsessed with fear, doubt, and worry. We, we live in a culture where these things are on the rise. How's the resurrection going to reverse that? Like when the news daily makes me uh, afraid or, or when current cultural issues make me confused and I, I doubt the things that I've always believed to be true. When, when culture makes me doubt the validity of this word. Like how's the resurrection supposed to reverse any of that? Shades, this, this is why we must see how we can encounter the resurrected Christ and how that reverses everything in our life. So that's the plan. First, I want us to see how the resurrection reverses everything, and then I want us to end up with seeing how it is that we can encounter the resurrected Christ. John begins unfolding the how of this for us, the how of resurrection reversals in verse 19. So John 20, verse 19, buckle up, here we go. On the evening of that day... The first day of the week, the doors being locked for the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Probably had to say that. They might have just slightly been freaking out. If you're in a room with locked doors and suddenly somebody's there who used to not be, that's a reason to freak out. So this is the evening of Resurrection Sunday. We explored all of that last week, Jesus rising from the dead. We saw that morning some some women who were followers of Jesus, they discovered the empty tomb. Peter and John had gone and checked out the empty tomb for themselves. And at least one person that we know of so far, Mary Magdalene, had actually seen, encountered the resurrected Christ. And if you just look back two verses, in verse 17, when she encountered Christ, he gave her a commission. We talked about that a lot last week. Or two weeks ago, I was out last week. He gave her a commission. He said, go and tell the disciples what you've seen and how it's changed everything. Look at verse 17. He says, go tell my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, go tell them that because of my death and resurrection, I paid the penalty for sin that separated you from God. I've reconciled you to him. My God is your God. My my father is your father. My death and resurrection have changed everything. Through me, you've been adopted into this family. Go tell my brothers, Jesus says. My resurrection has, has reconciled, redeemed. It's reversed everything. And in verse 18, Mary goes. 
and Mary tells. And what happens? Are the disciples filled with joy? Like joy so uncontainable that they join Mary in her commission. They just have to go out and tell everyone and anyone who will listen, Jesus lives. Hardly. That evening we find them not going out, we find them behind locked doors. They're not going out, they're trying to keep people out. Why? What is keeping them from this commission? The central point we talked about last time we were together was that in the resurrection, we see Christ as the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. To go and to tell He lives. What's keeping them from their commission? Fear. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They're afraid of the religious leaders. I mean, of course, like, if we think about it, that makes sense. Why shouldn't they be? These men had just killed their, their leader. They just killed Jesus. These, these disciples have to be feeling powerless at this moment. With Jesus dead, they have to be feeling purposeless. They've just given years of their lives to, to following this man that they believe to be the Messiah, and now it's just it's all over. Like Jesus himself, last words they heard were, it is finished. Like, it's just done. That's it. No more. Purposeless. Powerless. And it, it fills them with fear. And fear will keep anyone from their commission. I mean, is that not... True for us, like all too often, fear is what keeps us from our commission. As, as Christians, we claim to be the people of God who've encountered the resurrected Christ. We believe in Jesus. We cling to him as Lord and God. And we believe he's commissioned us, right? If you come from a Baptist background like mine, before you learn John 3.16, you learn Matthew 28.19. Go, therefore, and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Great commission. As Christians, we've been commissioned, right, as his people to make him known to the ends of the earth. That's not just Matthew 28. That's all over the New Testament. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Awesome. Why? Why are you his people? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been called to God, reconciled to God, and commissioned as the people of God. What keeps us from that commission? Is it not often fear? Fear, fear of people around us who are antagonistic towards the gospel? Fear of, of a culture that is antagonistic towards the gospel, that constantly offers up a, a tsunami of objections to, to Christianity, and we quickly feel powerless. I, feel like I, I can't possibly answer all the questions and objections that people have, the, the social rejection, the pressure, it's just, it's, it's too much. 
What's the point of even trying? I think that's the way that a lot of us as believers feel in the midst of our current cultural climate, is that the culture is so antagonistic towards our faith, towards the gospel, towards Christ. What's the point of even trying? It seems purposeless to try. Purposeless. Powerless. And it fills us with fear. And fear will keep anyone from their commission. It keeps us from it. It kept the disciples from it. What could possibly reverse their situation? Our situation. Only one thing. Encountering the resurrected Christ. They need, we need a resurrection reversal. Christ reversed death itself, and he reverses everything else. Look at it in verse 19 again. On the evening of that day, first day of the week, Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Despite their best efforts to lock everybody else out, they suddenly find themselves locked in with the resurrected Christ. They are locked in for the roller coaster ride of their lives. A resurrection that will reverse everything, starting with their fear. With the first words that Jesus speaks to them, he takes direct aim at their fear. The fear they're feeling, and he announces to them, peace be with you. In verses 19 through 23, we're going to see Jesus do three things that completely reverse the disciples' lives. And right here, this is the first thing. Number one, the resurrected Christ announces to us peace. The resurrected Christ announces to the disciples, to us, he announces Peace. He's actually going to say this again after they've inspected and made sure that it's actually him who's back from the dead. He's going, to, he's going to say it again. Look at verses 20 and 21. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. It's him. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus announces peace. As we walked throughout the evening that took place before his crucifixion, we saw him promise them peace. Go back and look. John 14, verse 27. John 16, and verse 33. He promised, my peace, I'm going to give you. My peace, I'm going to leave with you. And now, through his death and resurrection, he's accomplished peace. Right now, right here in this text, this isn't just a promise that peace is coming. This is an announcement that peace is present. Like, the peace that we will one day experience with Christ when he makes all, when he returns and he makes all things new, that peace, Jesus is saying, is already breaking into the present. As Christians, we believe that the day will come when Christ will return. He will make all things new, set up his kingdom for now and forever. We will experience perfect peace. Through his resurrection, that peace is already breaking into the present. That age to come, not yet fully here. But through the resurrected Christ, we already get to experience part of it. We talk about this concept a lot at Shades. You will see it all throughout the New Testament. We call it the already not yet. Not my words. Theologian much smarter than me came up with that a long time ago. 
the already not yet. We live in the midst of the already not yet. And what we mean when we say that is that the day is coming when the kingdom of God will be brought in full. Sin and death will be fully and finally reversed, banished from from earth, and Christ will make all things new. That day, I think we can all agree this much, is not yet here. Anyone still experiencing the effects of sin and death? If not, just look in a mirror. That, never mind. We're aging, people. We're getting older. We're experiencing the effects of sin and death. That kingdom that's coming is not yet. But already we get to experience portions of it because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the point at which the coming age is breaking into the present. It's death being reversed. That's what's coming, right? The reversal of death, the reversal of sin, the reversal of all of it. That's what's happening in the resurrection of Jesus. The age to come, the age where death is reversed, is breaking into the present through the resurrection of Christ. It's the peace that we do not yet know in its final fullness already breaking into the present. This is what Jesus announces to his disciples and to you. Peace be with you right here, right now, because I'm with you. Right here, right now. I have died in your place. See the scars in my hands? See the scar on my side? I have died in your place. I have risen again so you can know that I have defeated sin. I have defeated death. I have accomplished Peace. You can experience it in me already. No, it's not yet fully come. You can experience it already in me. And this reverses the disciples' fear. Verse 20 says that because of this, they became glad. A better translation of the Greek right there would be they rejoiced. They're not filled with fear. They're filled with joy. This is a resurrection reversal. But the reversal isn't yet complete. Christ Christ reversed their fear by announcing peace to them. But what about their feeling powerless? See, the second thing that Christ does to completely reverse the disciples' lives, number two, the resurrected Christ gives to us power. Does it for the disciples? Does it for us? He not only announces peace. The second thing, the resurrected Christ gives to us power. Verse 22. And when he had said this, peace be with you, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This verse confuses a lot of people, especially if you grew up within the church or you know your Bible pretty well. You're probably seeing this and comparing it with what you know from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a festival that we call Pentecost, and we typically talk about it as the coming of the Holy Spirit. The disciples at Pentecost are filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time. And the events of Acts chapter 2 take place 40 days after Jesus' ascension to the Father. So we've got a little chronological problem right here. Pentecost is just a little bit later than the Easter evening that we're in right here in John 20. It's a contradiction in our Bible. Is this John getting this wrong? No. 
I think that what often happens with our confusion is that we just misunderstand what's happening right here in John chapter 20. Throughout the Gospel of John, we have seen time and again Jesus perform symbolic acts that point forward to coming realities. He performs symbolic acts that point forward to coming realities. Uh, and, And when he talks about them, he talks about them in the present tense, even though they're still to come. Probably one of the easiest examples of this that I could give to you is John 13. We don't have time to go through more than this. But in John 13, we saw Jesus wash the disciples' feet. And when he gets to Peter, Peter objects. And Jesus says this in John 13 and verse 8. Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. As Jesus literally saying, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, scrub between your toes right here in this moment, you're lost, separated, cut off from me. No salvation over the foot washing. That's the deal. No, this is a symbolic act that's pointing forward to the cross where Christ humbled himself to cleanse the dirtiest part of us, our sin-soaked hearts. And unless our sins are washed away by his blood, we have no part with him. It was a present symbolic act pointing forward to a coming reality. In a similar way, Jesus' actions and words right here in John 20 are symbolic. The Greek word for breath and spirit are the same word, pneuma. Breath was often wind. It was often a symbol for the, the spirit. Jesus is symbolically showing his disciples and us that the same Holy Spirit who has empowered him will now empower them. Just like my breath gives my body life, empowers my body, the Holy Spirit that has empowered me to do everything you've seen me do, to speak all the words you've heard me speak, he will now empower you. They're not powerless. The resurrected Christ has given them power. This is a resurrection reversal. But the reversal isn't complete yet. We see a third thing that Christ does to completely reverse these disciples' lives. We've seen him announce peace to reverse their fear. We've seen him give them power to reverse their sense of powerlessness. And now, number three, where they feel purposeless. The resurrected Christ commissions us with a purpose. He does it for them. He does it for us. The resurrected Christ commissions us with a purpose. These men who felt fearful, Christ announced peace. These men who felt powerless, Christ has given them power. Now these men who feel purposeless, Christ commissions them with a purpose. What purpose? He actually says it twice, just in different ways. We've already read it once, back up to verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Here it comes, their purpose, their commission. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You. He says it again, but with different words, down in verse 22. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That is another verse that confuses people. Like, you look at that and you're like, what in the world is going on here? I think I just became a lot more powerful than I thought I was. I can withhold forgiveness or give it. This has been used in various systems of belief and faith for certain persons to lord power over other people. 
Is that what's going on right here? It's actually not as complicated as we tend to make it. If you, if you go back and you look at all the places throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about being sent by the Father. He talks about that a lot. The Father who sent me, the Father who sent me, the Father. If you go back and you look at all those different places, nearly every time he talks about that, in one way or another, he says that he has been sent by the Father to do his will. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7.16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. My teaching, my actions, my word, I don't do anything apart from the Father. So much so that by the time we got to John 14, we saw him saying to, to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like That's how in sync I am. I don't do anything apart from his his will. Jesus was sent to do the will of the Father, which ultimately was to live, die, and rise for the forgiveness of God's people, that they might be saved, reconciled to him. And now, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He sent me to do his will. I'm sending you to do mine, which is what? Father sent, yes, right there, Mike. Fa- the Father sent me to accomplish forgiveness for all. I'm sending you to announce forgiveness to the world. Is that not what he says in verse 22? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Don't rip that verse out of context and try to use it like a magic wand of forgiveness. I'll forgive you. Not you. Forgive you. Nope, never mind. You. Definitely not you. (laughs) No, this verse, don't rip it out of context, it comes on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm sending you to do my will. Just like I was sent to do the Father's will. I'm sending you out in my authority to do my will. I'm empowering you with my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a genie in a lamp kind of power that you can just use for whatever you you wish. No, the Holy Spirit isn't a power that we can wield however we want. He's a person of the Godhead and his power is for a purpose. He empowers us to proclaim That there is free forgiveness of sins and true life in Christ. He empowers us to proclaim to the world, come to Christ. He empowers us to proclaim, apart from Christ, there's no forgiveness of sins. And through our proclamation, the Holy Spirit works His power and people are forgiven. Through our proclamation, others reject the gospel and remain in their sin. Forgiveness is withheld because we have no forgiveness to offer other than the forgiveness available in Christ. What greater purpose could we be commissioned for? What greater power could we be invited to participate in? Shades, get, get the implication of this. Just like we have seen Jesus in the Gospel of John announce to people, your sins are forgiven. We are commissioned and empowered 
to announce the same thing. Do you not tremble at that? Like when Jesus would say to someone, your, fins, your sins are forgiven, the religious leaders would freak out. They'd say, nobody can forgive sins but God. And God alone, exactly. Jesus was God in the flesh. And his very Holy Spirit empowers you to announce to the world, there is free forgiveness in Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. Come to Christ. What greater power could we be invited to participate in? Shades, do you, do you see the resurrection reversal? It's reversed death itself and it reverses everything else. These men who were purposeless, powerless, and filled with fear, Christ has announced to them peace, given them power, and commissioned them with a purpose. And he's done the same for you and for me. Fear cannot keep us from our commission. Not when we encounter the resurrected Christ. Not when he has given us peace and power to proclaim him. Fear cannot keep us from our commission. But what about doubt? I mentioned both of those in the beginning. And we see even in this text that not only did fear keep some of the disciples from commission, but as we keep going, we see that doubt also works in a similar way. Doubt can keep us from our commission. What if, what if we doubt that we've ever encountered the resurrected Christ? Like any of you struggle like with that? Like right now, have I ever really encountered Christ? What if, what if we doubt that he has even been resurrected? I mean, the, the disciples got to see him physically with their eyes. Pretty easy to see how that would reverse everything for them, but how's it supposed to reverse everything for me? Having seen him with my eyes. And, and the cultural issues that surround me exert pressure on my faith. They cloud my mind with, with doubts. Current issues make me doubt the validity of this word, the, the validity of, of Christ. This word just seems out of step with our, our times. That leads me to doubting the validity of my faith. What if, I, what if I doubt that I've ever encountered the resurrected Christ, or what if I doubt that he has been resurrected at all? How can my doubts be reversed? Only by one thing. you got to encounter the resurrected Christ. He reversed death itself. He reverses everything else. So the question is how? How do we encounter the resurrected Christ? We've seen how his resurrection reverses things. But how do we actually encounter him? I think that John unpacks that for us in verses 24 to 31. Let's look at it quickly. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Their fear is taken care of. Proclaiming Christ to Thomas who won't believe. And I kind of like, if I'm honest right here, like I feel bad for Thomas because Thomas gets a bad rap. Nobody ever likes to talk about the other primary passage in John where Thomas appears, which is in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus gets the idea, hey, I'm going to go down near Jerusalem where everybody wants to kill me. And all the disciples are like, that's a bad idea, Jesus. And Thomas is like, let's go, I'll die with him. Nobody talks about that. Thomas gets no credit for that. 
Thomas misses church one time, and it's on his perfect attendance record for the rest of forever. <laughs> Doubting Thomas. Don't miss next Sunday. That's how we'll label you. Doubting Ed. <laughs> Missed one time. <laughs> Doubting Thomas for like the rest of church history. For doing the same thing any of us would have done. Like if, if some of your close friends started telling you that somebody was back from the dead you would ask them what they were smoking. Like, we wouldn't believe them either. I I imagine Thomas had to be like, okay, so he's back from the dead, so where is he? Oh, he's not here right now. Okay. So he was here earlier when I wasn't here. Yeah, okay, that all, that's very convenient. All of us would have had the same doubts. Some of us do have the same doubts. And only one thing will reverse them, encountering the resurrected Christ. Verse 26, eight days later, that's the next Sunday. Jewish people counted parts as part of the whole. So the fact that part of the first Sunday gets rolled into the count leading up to the next, not seven days, but eight. Eight days later, the next Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, it doesn't say for fear of the Jews this time, maybe Thomas is the one turning the key. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And watch Christ do the same thing with Thomas. The resurrected Christ announces peace. Verse 27, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Christ gives power to Thomas, for he gives Thomas himself, his person, to possess. Thomas cries out, my Lord, my God. All of us, we possess the person of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Christ is powerfully present with every believer by the Holy Spirit. Places like Romans 8 9 even call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Just like we saw earlier, Christ giving power by giving his Spirit, now he gives power by giving himself. It's the same thing. Christ gives power, for he gives us himself by the Holy Spirit. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Christ turns Thomas toward his commission, his purpose. Thomas, it's fantastic that you've gotten to see me with your eyes and that that has reversed all your doubts. But blessed are those who won't even see me with their eyes. Jesus is talking about you. Blessed are those who won't even see me with their eyes, but they will see me another way, and they will believe. They'll believe. So the question becomes, how? How will they see? How will we see? I think that's the very question John goes on to answer in the next two verses. The quintessential summing up of his entire gospel. John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John understood what Christ was saying to Thomas and to the rest of his disciples when he directed Thomas' attention to those who would believe in him even without seeing him. 
John knew what he was, John knew Christ was saying, Thomas, there are so many who aren't going to see me with their eyes, but I'm commissioning you just like I've commissioned the rest of the disciples as the Father sent me, so I send you to proclaim forgiveness to the world only in me. I'm commissioning you to proclaim the truth of what you've seen. And through your proclamation, through the word, they will see. Through the word, seeing comes by hearing. Through the word, they will behold my glory, encounter the resurrected Christ. That's what John believes. That's why he's written. Did you not see him say that? These things are written. I have, I have put pen to paper and written down these things so that you may believe. John believes that you see, you behold the glory of Christ, the Son of God, through what he's written, through the Word. Shades, we encounter the resurrected Christ through the Word. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. You back up a little bit earlier in Romans 10, it says, how will people believe if they don't hear, there's an intimate connection. How are they going to see Christ if they don't hear of Christ? How will they hear unless someone preaches, proclaims to them? All of this about seeing Christ through the Word, all this about Christ being proclaimed, this isn't just about what I do, like as a pastor, like standing up here proclaiming and preaching. This is about what all of us do in bearing witness to who Christ is and proclaiming him as the Son of God, the Messiah. Christ commissioned his disciples, all of us, to proclaim him in the power of the Holy Spirit so that people might encounter him as their peace. We encounter the resurrected Christ through the word. Are you encountering him now? Like right now, it's the gospels proclaimed. Are you seeing the glory of the resurrected Christ now as he steps into our midst through this word and announces, peace be with you? As he looks at you and says, receive the Holy Spirit. As he looks at you and says, as the Father sent me, so also I send you, Shades Valley. Are you seeing the glory of how he didn't just reverse the lives of the disciples back then, but he's reversing our lives right now because this word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ephesians tells us that this word is the sword of the spirit. The Holy Spirit wields this word, pierces our hearts, opens our eyes through our ears, and shows us Christ. Are you seeing him? Do we, even, do we even listen to sermons that way? Like, do you listen to a sermon that you might encounter Christ? Do you read this word that you might encounter Christ? Do you gather around it with a community group that you might encounter Christ? I... I grew up in church. I got, a, I got a father who's a pastor, which means I'm messed up and need therapy. I told you I was on antidepressants. It's okay. You can laugh at that. It's fine. I'm making the joke. That makes it okay, right? I didn't grow up listening to sermons that way. I grew up listening to sermons for their entertainment value, not for an encounter of the Messiah. 
I listen to sermons for entertainment value in the moment, not to encounter a Messiah, not to be equipped for mission. Do you come to this word, whether it's in a sermon, on a Sunday, whether, when, whenever you come around the word, whenever you just talk about Christ, do you come that you might encounter him? It, are you there for entertainment value? Are you there for encountering the Messiah, for being equipped for mission? I, I tell people all the time, the way you should listen to a sermon is as if it's not primarily for you, because it's not. Like, I hope that you encounter Christ in this and it shapes you. But this is also meant, my job description according to Ephesians 4 is to be equipping you for the work of the ministry. And so my hope is that this is equipping you for the mission that you listen to a sermon for the next person. Parents, that you listen in order to be able to pour into your kids the things of God. Students, that you listen so you can pour them out to your peers and your roommates and your classmates. My prayer is that this is about encountering Christ. We want to see Jesus. Do we gather as a community to encounter Christ as we, week by week, proclaim his word over one another? We don't just do that at this moment in the service, like during the sermon. We do this through the whole thing. We gather week after week. Not to hear Jonathan proclaim the word, but for us as a community of which I'm just one piece. Not the whole thing. Brad preached about that last week. We gather, me included, as just one piece to proclaim the word over one another. Our entire service, our worship service, it, it's, designed, it's designed that we as a body would be proclaiming the gospel over one another. Every week, we announce peace, just like we've seen Christ do. Do we not? We announce the peace of Christ to one another. In that moment of passing the peace, peace of Christ with you and also with you. We announce peace. Every week, we gather around this word and we gather around this table in order to behold the powerful person of Christ and that he has given us himself. We, we come to this table, gathering around it, saying to one another, I need the powerful person of Christ more than I need bread and drink to keep my physical body of life. I need the, I need the body and blood of Christ. It is the power that gives me life. We announce peace to one another. We gather around the word and the table to see that the person of Christ is given, the powerful person of Christ is given to us. And every week before we leave, we speak over one another our commission, our purpose. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. We gather to proclaim this gospel that the resurrected Christ has announced peace, given power, and commissioned us with a purpose. Do we do all these things every week just because it's what we do? Or do we do them to encounter the resurrected Christ? When you pass the peace in here, you are encountering the resurrected Christ announcing his peace to you through your brothers and sisters. When you hear this message, you're encountering the resurrected Christ speaking the truth of his word to you. When you come to the table, you're encountering the resurrected Christ, body broken, blood poured out, given to you for you. When you hear the benediction, you're encountering the resurrected Christ commissioning you out 
Do we do these things just because it's what we do, or do we do them to encounter the resurrected Christ? We encounter him through his word as we speak it, sing it, pray it, and preach it over one another. This is why we meet every single week. We already see the disciples starting to do that right here, don't we? They met one Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. They meet the next Sunday. They're going to continue that throughout Acts. We've continued that tradition on down to this day. We meet Sunday after Sunday. Why? Because we need to encounter the resurrected Christ together again and again and again through his word. Yes, you can encounter the resurrected Christ as an individual, but just like Brad preached about last week, we need one another. I need to encounter the resurrected Christ through you. I need you. We need, I need you speaking Jesus, speaking the gospel into my life. I need to see you at this table proclaiming the gospel. I need to hear you singing, proclaiming the gospel, praying, proclaiming. I need the body of Christ constantly proclaiming the truth into my life that my sins are forgiven. I have peace with Christ. The powerful spirit lives in me, and I've been commissioned with a purpose to spread joy in Jesus to the ends of the earth. I need you speaking into my life week after week. Just look at what happened to Thomas when he missed one Sunday. Like I'm just kidding, but kind of half kidding. Like seriously, we don't just do this out of tradition. We need to encounter week after week the resurrected Christ through his word along with his people. Only the resurrected Christ will reverse all these things in our life. And my fear and my doubt are not being reversed Could it be that I am not encountering the resurrected Christ through his word? I don't ever open it to encounter him. I don't listen to a sermon to encounter him. Just to hear its rhetorical entertainment. How's Jonathan going to alliterate this week? Could it be that that we aren't experiencing a resurrection reversal because we aren't experiencing the Christ who's been resurrected? He reversed death itself, and he can reverse everything else. John says it towards the end of verse 31. By believing in him, you have life. Only in him. You have life in his name. You get him. Now already, even though you've not yet seen him, already you get him in your your life. His resurrection reverses all things. Shades, have you encountered the resurrected Christ? Are you encountering him now through his word proclaimed? Hear him as he announces peace, gives power, and commissions you with a purpose to proclaim life in him through free forgiveness of sins to the world. This is the resurrection reversal. Father, we love you and we are grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. We are grateful for his death and we are grateful for his resurrection. Father, I pray that even now as we come to the table, we are encountering your son, experiencing his peace, believing the promise of power provided through the spirit. So we go out commissioned, not fearful, not doubting, firm in our faith in you. Father, I pray that we as a body, as we sing over one another, pray over one another, that we would continue to encounter your resurrected son, Jesus, by the power of your spirit.
whose name we pray these things. Amen.